Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers who want to simplify and speed up their custom platform development. Visit TimeSys.com today for access to our podcast archives. Hi, this is Gene Sally and Maciej Hamash, and we're a Linux Link Radio show. This is year number two, I believe. I think this is the first episode of next year's. Wow. And of course, you know, we're recording this in what, November? No. <laughs> New era. <laughs> no, actually, we're no, no. So, so this is year number two. So thanks a lot for, for listening in. You know, it's time. So, so or, you know what we got for a one year big celebration? Yeah, we'll, we'll probably go out and um, celebrate right after the recording of this episode. But uh, <laughs> 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 what we'll do today is we actually had a lot of feedback from. Well, they bought uh, us coffee. I'm sorry. They bought us coffee. That was yeah, I have. I have some right here. They said it was specials than the other coffee they normally get. <laughs> so uh, what we'll do today is we'll change slightly the structure of our episode today based on the feedback that we've received from you and and thank you for all the support for uh, all the comments and ideas that you like to hear on. So today what we'll do is we'll begin with providing an update on what's new in open source. And given that a 2624 kernel came out, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. Then we'll focus on interprocess communication, I guess, right? Well, no, we had a couple other. Th- Actually, we have a. This is a full host of whatever. So we have. We want to talk about the kernel, mm-hmm. and then we wanted to talk about a little bit. Even though I know you don't want to, we want to talk a little bit about a GCC because they have a, a new release that just came out for them. So we'll just yeah. we'll do I guess do a drive by on that. And then, even though you don't want to, but I did want to mention because we were at RTTEC. It's, it's an R with a bunch of T's and E and a bunch of C's. RTEC, whatever show. Well, you should remember you were there. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> so they actually uncheaped up and sent me out there for a week. And then we're going to be at Embedded World. In, uh, well, you, no, you're going to be at Embedded World. And so we wouldn't mention that too. Yeah. So in, 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 where's, where's Embedded World at? Uh, Nuremberg, oh, Nuremberg, lucky, Germany. Lucky dog. Again, the main to- topic of our today's episode is interprocess communication. But before we jump into our main topic for today, we'll, we'll spend some time talking about uh, what's new in the open source, and we'll focus on Linux kernel and on uh, GCC. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to say it like that. Just in sounds one like we like rehearsed and planned. It. No, no. I don't want word to get. I don't want word to get around. Planned? What's that? Okay, so the 2.6.24 Linux has been out for, what, a week, two weeks, maybe? Something like that. And there's actually quite a few um, changes and improvements. One of those changes is the um, an improvement around CFS, uh, and uh, the CFS stands for... I don't like acronyms, completely fair scheduler. There you go. It's been improved for both performance and a footprint. Right now, the new implementation of uh, CFS uh, should be a, a bit faster. It's smaller for both uh, uniprocessor and SMP. Uh, yeah, I heard they really cut down the SMP size. Yeah, that. so that's a huge improvement, well, a especially of, for scheduler. Yeah, a lot of folks use CFS too because that's the underpinnings for the, for the real-time, right? That's the so-called mm-hmm. – start out as the tickless scheduler and then no one understood what tickless meant. And then, so they changed it completely fair because everyone likes things that are fair, I think. Yeah. So uh, speaking about the tickless feature, there's another improvement there. Um, It it got into a kernel with 2.6.21 kernel release, Mm -hmm. but right now it provides support for more architectures. Mm -hmm. And again, support for a tickless timer. uh, It allows the kernel to disable uh, timer interrupts for longer variable periods of time. So um, if you want to save on power, which... 
applies a lot to embedded systems, right? Where mm-hmm. you have battery operated devices, you can you can use that feature to control the power consumption. Uh, another enhancement in a Linux kernel is has been introduced to um, wireless configuration and, and device drivers. Um, there's been a new uh, wireless stack that was merged, I think, with the release of 2.6.22 Linux kernel. Yeah. But that wireless stack has not been used up till now by too many uh, device drivers. Yeah, it's been, it per- just one. it's been percolating out there for, I don't know, up to, up to a year now. Mm-hmm. And it just now is, it's now getting adopted. As, I mean, the driver list, and I know we wrote down the driver list, but the driver list is huge. The number of people that have now adopted that. And it's, it's cause before it was like the one proof of concept driver. I think it was the, you know, IW, uh, FW Wi-Fi, you know, the IWI Wi-Fi. I think whatever, that was sort of like the proof of concept driver. And now a lot of other drivers I know have collapsed mm-hmm. in there as well. And I think they have probably the Orinoco in there and the real links, whatever they're calling the Orinocos yeah. now. There's actually support for uh, the Intel Pro Wireless yeah, 3945 ABG yeah. device, but uh, you'll also find uh, device drivers for a number of uh, Broadcom chipsets. Okay. A Prism 54 SoftMac, a Marvell chipset, and also SDIO driver. Um, well, SDIO driver is important because there's a lot of devices out there, I mean, embedded systems that have SDIO port on a card, and a lot of wireless chipset vendors mm-hmm. um, build their, their new radios in an SD, uh, well, SD form factor. Um, yeah. So it's it's actually easy to integrate with embedded devices. So yeah. that's an interesting well, one. Because, I, I mean, the, the, the rate of change out there in wireless land is incredible. Yeah. I think they've probably practically given up, right, making them and something you can cement on the board. And so they just figure you'll substitute rate of production time. Yeah, and uh, but to support actually successfully those wireless devices and maybe other devices in an SD uh, card form factor, another subsystem has been improved. The uh, support for the SPI, SPI, SDIO, and the MMC layer has been improved. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that area of the Linux kernel has undergone a, 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 one of the biggest transformation uh, in its life. Um, and from now on, it's... Uh, hopefully going to support much better um, different uh, SD form factor devices like Wi-Fi for sure, but Bluetooth yeah. adapters, maybe some GPS receivers, and, and well, a, a whole range of other devices that manufacturers can think of these days. So from there, we can jump to maybe USB. Yeah, that's really cool, by the way. So following back, and this, this I think is going to really important for a lot of embedded customers, and, and, and that is the SBA... I'm thinking SDIO because that's why I just talked about. But the USB devices system subsystem has been reworked so that whenever you you know plug something in or you get this notification out in userland, script runs whatever authorizes device and then makes all these device things available to the kernel, and that has been changed for you to require authorization. I think the way it's initially set up is it requires authorization from root in order for the in order for the device. So right. if you're making you know something where you anticipate other folks that come plugging in and and you want to have control over the USB devices that are available to your system, this new change of the change out in this version of the kernel is very important in that it actually enables the framework for you to get control over the devices that are just automatically added to your system. Right. So rather than allowing end users to plug in whatever device they want, you can control that the specific device can accept only certain range of devices. Yeah. Uh, because you in most cases end users are not going to be operating as root. 
Yeah, and you know it's one of those things where it uses the the the, you know, the USB has a device yeah. a group and manufacturing whatever else. So it uses those kind of keys and the same sort of infrastructure that's already in place, but uh, as in that extra layer of authentication, it really helps you make a secure system and a more commercial system, mm-hmm. opposed to something that is just you know, like a desktop yeah. willy nilly. You can just sort of plug things in. Oh, we also want to you know the other thing is there's a lot of changes going on in there with respect to virtualization. Oh, which is really it's really cool to see that that coming up. Yeah. And virtualization has its you know has its cousin or maybe not even stepsister or something like that. But it's there's a um, family. Well, you know, the, it's been floating around the the kernel for a while. Is this notion of a container, and so that has been a little bit unstructured. But one of the things they did do it to spin up a little more structures, they started associating uh, the concept of a PID and a network namespace. Because when you get into like a containered system, it can, mm-hmm. you know, think about like a regular Linux system has one init, right? And yeah. more more appropriately has one global process list. Yeah. And when you get in a containered system, it's it's entirely reasonable to have three different process lists, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, so three different PID zeros, right? So there needs to be some sort of disambiguation. And um, I'm seeing, you know, what's what's happening with the, you know, the PID and the network namespaces is that as you do things like, you know, clone a process as a result of doing a fork or something like that, it does a better job of associating the new PID with the proper namespace. In other words, uh, does it mean that I can have direct association between my application and the specific network namespace? If I if I have several namespaces defined in my system, I can I can explicitly define that this part of my application is going to use this namespace basically hmm. basically it's it's like a it's a continuity sort of thing it's the best way i can describe it and i know we don't have a ton of time to talk about this but in the few minutes we have to, it's the best way i can describe yeah. it so the continuity and at the same time they also did more work on the task control groups which is pretty cool and that that follows back to the these these changes that have been going on in this containerization system. Mm-hmm. And part of the container is creating a you know what they call a task control group. I think they call them C groups. I think mm-hmm. that's what all the kids these days are calling them, right? And so there's more accounting and, and a tighter job. Those have been tightened up quite a quite a bit. It's actually pretty cool because I know that the, you know when you're working with a multi-process system, things like a task group is is, is important. And yeah. where do you want to have you know what CPU do you want to have associated with certain task group? And I did have my head like I said we don't have a the ton of time, and I didn't have my head all the way around this, but there's a great document in under the doc, you know, if you download under documentation, check out CPU sets.txt. And I, I think we could, I think it was pretty cool. You know, we were getting ready for this and figuring, but we could probably spend a decent amount of time talking about CPU sets and what's happening in the kernel with respect to virtualization. Yeah. But there's, there's a, a ton of activity happening there. Yeah, that's a topic for probably a, a separate um, episode. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing. I guess I'm sorry to monopolize the the to Go do this, it. but I'm on a roll. So I, for, before I forget, is the you know they're also doing you know this is sort of a gear switcher thing, but there's work actually now for kernel for Linux kernel markers mm-hmm. um, that that I think they're officially called static probing points. I think mm-hmm. is what they're calling them. But before was sort of these patches that were here that it did was the, you know the your, the code was patched at different points and it was really undependable. With respect to whether the the kernel probe, you know, the thing that we did the measurement would, so that that's been sorted out, and at least there's some agreed upon places where they do measurement probing, and that's really going to make life easier for the different sort of kernel probing projects that are out there. LTT has had this concept for a while because yeah. we use LTT here, right, yeah. to figure out and a lot of customers to figure out what in the world's going on. So there's these probe sets and. 
just having that in the kernel is an engineer in such a way that it's not expensive it's if they're help. if they're unused. I mean, that's really going to help people that yeah. are going to into that. So um, we've talked so far about different enhancements in the Linux kernel. I'm going to uh, before we jump to the next topic, I will uh, very quickly go through a list of new device drivers that have been added to a Linux kernel mainline. Sure. With the release of the 2.6.24 kernel, and I, and again, I'm not going not going to go through a complete list of device drivers. There is far more than what well, I'm going to. Why don't you? Well, we can just list them out alphabetically and read each one. And- <laughs> well, by the time I would reach the 15, probably people would um, turn off Click, the. Yeah. Well, no, I checked, and this is just. I mean, this is, uh, and I'm I'm sorry to go whatever, but this is common. You're certainly on Linux. The the wake of device drivers are supported mm-hmm. and. And updated, whatever, is incredible for every kernel release. There are so many new devices that yeah. are coming out from different vendors that, well, to support them effectively in Linux, you need to have those device drivers and, and having them well, integrated into a mainline is, is the best way to support them amongst well, different use, uses and uh, different boards, different architectures. So uh, on that note, uh, the, in a graphics area, there is a um, support for a new driver for the Blackfin BF54X frame buffer device driver. There is uh, a, a bunch of uh, device drivers that have been added for SATA IDE interfaces. I'm just going to mention, mention two. There is a, a driver for PADA CS5536 uh, driver for geode companionship. Oh. And there's a uh, driver for freescale uh, 3 gigabits per second SATA controllers. So that's that's what what's in, a, it's a, in the main line today. So we're starting to see, I mean, we get a lot of VIA customers out there. So that's yeah. really great that there's decent Pata SATA is, you know, serial ATA. Right? And so it's, it's really great to see that kind of support because that really makes x86 uh, for VIA look like a, a reasonable platform for I/O bound tasks, where, it should, where typically was not considered. So that's I mean, that's huge. It is, and uh, we've talked briefly about the wireless uh, device drivers, but there yeah. are other wired network device drivers. There's a new device driver for the uh, one of the latest Intel chipsets, uh, PCI Express based 10 gigab- gigabits Ethernet adapters. There's a uh, a new driver for the E1000 driver. Get out. Yeah, there is one uh, that supports, uh, well, on PCI Express. I mean, E1000, e- that's bread and butter, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a bread and butter, butter gigabit controller. And uh, what also has been added in, with this release is um, a device tree aware EMAC driver, which, okay. is, which is great for, um, well, power PC uh, solutions that have already adopted yeah. um, device, device tree approach. Um, in the sound area, uh, we have support for um, one of the Atmel DAC devices using Atmel's SSCs. Okay. And in the USB area, there's another another uh, driver for the uh, USB A UDC driver okay. for, for USB. And then there's a whole bunch of device drivers that have been added in the DVB section. So um, TV, uh, camera, uh, there's a... a um, Toshiba TCM825X VGA camera sensor uh, driver. There's a couple of uh, baseband tuners from Microtune. Oh, cool. And uh, there's a revamped version of uh, one of the Connexent 
the modulators. There's an I2C area, support for the DaVinci I2C controller. Yeah, you know, a lot of boards are coming out there that now support the the, the, the DaVinci. Yeah. And I know, who, who, which, which chip manufacturer? Texas Instruments. Thank you very yeah. much. That's a TI thing. And, you know, we, here we don't see a ton of support because, you know, TIA never really had a lot of device support, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're really starting to get in there and starting to do decent device support. Yeah, I think they finally figured out if, the, if they fi- if they support the devices, you know, maybe someone will then buy the yeah. uh, go with Linux for their chip. So lastly, just wanted to mention that briefly, um, Bluetooth. Uh, there is a generic driver for Bluetooth SDIO and USB devices mm-hmm. in the kernel mainline now. So if uh, new so devices, we're USB over Bluetooth, Bluetooth over USB. Pardon me. Yes, Bluetooth over. I sorry, I misspoke. Bluetooth over USB or SD. Oh wow, interface. So. Um, Given the breadth of different devices that we see on the market today, those generic device drivers are a very good either starting point or way to adopt those de- those devices in um, actual projects, actual devices that people work on. Yeah. Well, you know what people run into is like, oh, you repeat yourself too much. But, you know, we do do a lot of uh – we do know a lot of customers will go in there and use the you know the latest kernel. That's their thing. They go in the latest kernel so they can get a hold of all these device drivers so they don't have to backport them. Because if yeah. you look a lot of these, like a lot of the device drivers you'll see, and this is in USB and in mm-hmm. the wireless, what's what's happened is that they've updated the entire stack that these rest on. So if you're trying to like, yeah. you know, if you're trying to backport to an older kernel. Forget about it. I mean, really, it doesn't make... Oh, you can, but you're not going to rip the benefits of uh, performance optimizations that community puts in place for new kernels, right? You can always backboard certain device drivers, but uh, as you said, um, because the major subsystems are being reworked... It's not just the device driver that's changing. It's not only the device driver. Yeah, and I I guess we'll have to to spend some time to see if anyone's interested in, you you know... Diving into the virtualization, even if it's into the C groups and whatever else that's happened there, because there's interesting changes. Yeah. Hey, let's jump to your favorite topic. <laughs> I, I know I'm a user land boy, right? So GCC came out with the with a new release. Yeah, what version is it? This is four two three. Wow. So it's it's getting up there, right? And I went through. I, you know, I'm a compiler junkie nerd. I guess I'm a nerd, right? But who likes compilers? So it's actually pretty cool. What you know, they had some, you know, some minor changes. They got in there and they changed around um, the overflow semantics because mm-hmm. before you could, and if, I think if you write a loop like this, you know, someone should combine smack you anyway. But you know, if you wrote a, a for loop that basically depended upon the variable to wrap to turn negative to terminate the loop, ouch. Um, <laughs> well, nice optimization. <laughs> some people do that, right? So some people do that, right? Um, um, they're, they'll do a better job of you know discovering that and warning you um, with the you know, strict overflow uh, okay. warnings and uh, whatever else. So those are the default settings that you're talking about. Well, you know, there's actually the command line is f you know f strict dash overflow mm. and warn you know warn w strict dash overflow. Okay, and they have to it's it tells the compi- compiler to assume whether overflow semantics to pay attention to overflow semantics to figure out what it's when it's generating code. Mm-hmm. Because you can write a certain kind of loop that the compiler will look at and say, oh, infinite loop. And instead of generating a counter that increments that does, it'll just say, well, true, right? Yeah. And you know, if you have a for loop that says, hey, if something is greater than zero and it keeps incrementing the variable and you do this such that the variable then is, the, you know, if you say greater than zero and then once you reach the overflow value, the, the next increment flips the, um, flips the sign bit, right? You, yeah. a, you have a negative number, right? And which actually terminate your loop. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. 
So the compiler will interpret that differently and decide whether it wants to generate, you know, a basically while true and just skip all that incrementing stuff because it has to do memory fetches and everything to get that to happen potentially. So um, you're talking only about GCC or uh, you're also um, talking about other uh tools that are needed by a compiler when this, you build it. This is all GCC. GCC, okay. Yeah, I'll make it easy. Um, Good. Uh, if, if you want to dig into bin utils and everything else, I, no, that's, we'll say okay. that for Okay, so what time. else is new? So then the other thing is there's a top-level reordering. So before mm-hmm. GeoGCC used to come in there and just reorder things at will. Um, so if you just want to do something that generates ASM and you really depend on the order that things come out, you know, if you get rid of the stuff in the front, you're basically writing your own little loader for the program. You can fix up some things there. Other thing of interest, and this is one of those other, you know, evilness things, right? That you know, some guy 15 years ago wrote, but there's now warning that the GCC is going to be changed to use C99 semantics for mm. inline functions. Interesting. And that really, yeah. really matters because because you know some people would do you know inlines and they you know, they wrote them. They even do something like extern and inline, which yeah. is like why 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 why. And so, so a lot of that's been fixed up, right? And, yeah. and it's like the the warning. And there's also another cool warning flag that you can set on finally for okay. you to to check for improper uses of address pointers, right? Oh. So if if you like perform tests against address pointers, and, and uh, it'll come back and say, "Hey, you really want to do this?" Yeah. Because you, well, some people actually you know make that mistake, and then other people that write self-modifying code, which <laughs> right actually need <laughs> to do that. Self-modifying code. Well, you know. I, well, so uh, what you're saying is that writing C programs right now is going to be a bit easier because you have some of the safety checks. Yeah, in the, there's in the compiler. More, more safety checks in there. And the other thing that I, I guess is the C++ has a – I know, I know very few – not a lot of folks use C++ uh, for their embedded target. But you know, I was flipping through the, the changes for that. And the one thing that really caught my eye was the deprecation of the min and max operators mm. in C++. So, you know, when you ever go in – for the job interview and you know, you know, when you go into these and you sit across from some guy that looks like he hasn't bathed or whatever for a while, and then he quizzes you on like C plus plus yeah. minutia, right? There are a couple undocumented operators in GNU's C plus plus that have to do with minimum and maximum yeah. and gone. They're gone. Yeah. So finally, and I, I, easy to get a job these days. <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, I'm, well, the thing is, is that you no longer have to explain what they do because they're deprecated. Right. <laughs> that, that's the big difference. And okay. uh, there's also, you know, they also introduced, and it's it's interesting that it's only, I read it, but, you know, I didn't have the chance to check before I came in here for C++, but for regular C, but there's also a, finally a, a warning in C for someone that produces an if statement without any following. Because mm-hmm. um, there's some folks that do ifs that, pr- that produce side effects. They terminate and they don't, they have no, um, they have no action, right? So yeah. you say if and it's true, and then there's a block or expression that follows. There's That's some people. There's folks that would just write if blank, yeah. and they'll write out an, an expression and terminate it. So that's something that's been uh, fixed. So that if you write something that's like you know if one semicolon, you can have a warning set up to say hey you made a boo boo. Yeah. Um, interesting. That's that's pretty. I mean, there's there's some really interesting things that are going on there in okay. the standard you know C library. I know just a lot of people don't. Don't touch on those. Yeah. And there's some visibility issues too with respect to how C++ gets in there and determines what templates it binds to what functions. And that that in itself is – it's almost like an exercise in understanding time travel, uh, uh, working out the, 
the, the C template binding. So we spent quite a lot of time, I guess, um, talking about what's new in the open source, given all the new releases that happened. But uh, the primary topic for today's episode Yeah, we was... blew it, I think, because I think we have... Officially, if we follow the, the, the format, you know, if we go too long, you really go too long, people are going to listen to it. So, but, uh, but I think, I'm going to hear that on YouTube probably one day. <laughs> Well, you, you, you know what they're like. I mean, the, the, the people that look at the end and say, well, it's 40 minutes. And yeah. Well, so let's start at least this topic and we can continue it next uh, next time. Hopefully we'll have less um, in terms of updates, what's an open source community and we'll be able to focus a bit more on the primary topic. But Well, you soaked up all the time with the kernel update. Well, okay. <laughs> you did. My fault. Okay. So uh, the inter-process communication. Yeah, we want to talk about IPC. Yeah. Last time we talked about what it takes to write a new device driver, mm-hmm. and we've talked about how you communicate with the device driver from the user land. I, I don't think that there's a, a single application these days. Um, I mean, in a, that that's deployed in a in a real product that would not use one at least one of the IPC sure. models. Yeah, yeah, it's a common problem for embedded people to solve, and there's all kinds of different. Right? There's all kinds of different tricks in the bag with Linux. And one of the neat things about Linux and is that people call, you know, people call in and say, well, I have something that uses, you know, semaphores. Do you, do you have semaphores? And, uh, yeah. and so you always have that. But so we did want to talk about some basic, you know, IPC sort of mechanisms. We have a semaphore, I guess I mentioned semaphores, semaphores. pipes, message queues, and signals. Mm-hmm. Mutexes are in there too, yeah. which are worth talking about, but, I know when we were getting ready for this, we thought, well, I don't know, because, you know, mutexes really are a thread sort of thing rather than a process well, sort of thing. It is a synchronization object. But it mostly for, is a synchronization. No doubt that it's yeah. a synchronization object. Um, so when you when you talk about inter-process communication um, and Linux, and I guess most of the operating systems, there are different standards that describe um, how the inter-process communication should behave. Right? Yes, yeah. Well, there's in this case there's two there's two big standards out there. You have mm. the System Five, yeah. right? Um, which and that's is, been and that's been in Linux for a while. Oh my goodness, yeah. yeah and then you nice. also have um, uh, what's out there from POSIX. POSIX. And you know, POSIX is, geez, I mean, POSIX has been supported in various our incarnations, you know, since the yeah. beginning of Linux. That's one of the things. I mean, the POSIX standard shifts, and then the semantics behind what things do also. Right. Has has shifted around, and what also actually has changed is well, not that much API, but uh, the implementation of that API has been uh, revamped over the past few, well, I would say years now. Oh yeah, uh, for different POSIX mechanisms to make them very efficient and uh, to enable end users with writing the applications exactly the way they want. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that we can talk about, for example, message queues or, or signals because there there have been some of a uh, Updates. Yeah, those are two interesting. Those are two interesting things. I always think, you know. So if you think about a message queue, Mm. a lot of folks they they sort of get involved and and they're like, well, okay, I need to pass messages, Mm -hmm. so maybe I should use one of these message queue things. And when you set up a message queue, it's a it's a object that's created. That's actually a device node. I mean, it'll actually make a file node in the system, and it creates one of these. And you you sign in a name. And then you have a couple different objects will then go and open up the same message queue. And I shouldn't say objects, a couple different processes, each will open up the same message queue. Mm-hmm. And then the kernel provides a buffered environment, um, a buffered and synchronized environment for this message queue. So you can have one process that's, oh, matter of fact, let's go this. You can have multi-readers 
and multi-writers. That's the one neat thing about message, message keys. keys. It doesn't matter how many connections you have for read or write. Um, the operating system will then figure out, uh, will, you know, will then perform the correct queuing and then, you know, just let someone answer the message queue mm-hmm. when it's ready. Is it synchronous, asynchronous? Well, you can set them up to be either synchronous or asynchronous mm-hmm. uh, with respect to, you know, whether the call releases, right? Re- Blocking. Where, where the call blocks on return. So, you know, if you wanted to have like a typical reader process set up, you could just have it do a blocking read mm-hmm. and it just sort of sits there, right? And then whenever whenever uh, a write occurs in the pipe, whenever the write completes, one of the readers, like the first reader in the queue, in, in fact, will, you know, get that message and then the next reader somehow gets bumped forward. It's an implementation detail as to what happens. Yeah. So I, I know that you spent quite some time playing with uh, message queues and um, I, I always kind of wanted to ask this question. How large is the queue? Interesting. So it is something you've set at kernel time. At kernel compilation time, you fix the size of the queue, uh, the number of queues your system is allowed to have, the number of messages it's allowed, you know, the in essence, the size of the queue is the, the depth of the queue times the size of the message, right? Fairly mm-hmm. easy math, right? Say it again. The, the size of the queue times mm-hmm. the size of the, you know, the depth or the depth, I'll use computer science terms, the okay. depth of the queue times the, the maximum depth times the size of the message and a little bit of overhead. Okay. You're shaking your head. Well, I know because I corrected myself like seven times. Just try one time. <laughs> depth of the queue times size of the message. Okay. That's, that's how big the message queue is. Correct. Okay. Um, Got it. And you, you know, and one of the things about that much is that you can run into situations where you can get into failure modes in mm-hmm. your system because if, because you have to plan that out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. If you run into one of those, Oh, I'm going to beat up on my system. Right. So you have the QA engineer comes in who, you know, who wants to make a name for himself. Right. And, and so what he does is he floods your system, right? Yeah. Well, you can easily get into very interesting breaking situations because what will happen is the, reads will sometimes block depending on if you have a blocking read right so your read will block until the till the queue frees up right. but when you have that blocking read rest of your processes your process they, they is com- coming to a halt right yeah. so you can get into some real interesting synchronization problems or and real interesting throughput problems whenever you begin to hit the maximum size of your your queue and then if you do like non-blocking yeah. you know if, if you're not careful and you check for that condition because you actually needed to come back and do a rewrite so what you're saying is that one message queue can can handle both uh, blocking and unblocking messages. Yeah. So um, the the question then bears: um, Should you mix the two? You know what? Maybe um, I could I could easily see a blocking reader and a non-blocking writer mm-hmm. uh, process. That's fine. I guess the, the here's the fundamental thing. Here's what my my years of doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. mostly unsuccessfully, right? So the key to, to doing this is to not have your message queue, your POSIX message queue serve as a queue, right? So the the real trick to doing this is to have the reader side set up to read off and put whatever data it needs into whatever internal That's processing queue inside your process. Yeah. Uh, because I think if you have, if you get in the situation where your message queue behaves as a data storage mechanism, you will get into all manner of problems. What happens when your message queue is... Full. Um, depends if you're blocking or non-blocking, right? Well, so to a writer, to an attempt um, to write another message to yeah. that queue. So if you're a blocking writer, it'll block to the queue opens, mm-hmm. and if you're a non-blocking writer, you'll it, the it'll come back right the error code. It'll come back with negative one, 
Yeah, it'll come back with a negative one error, and then it'll set error no. Okay. To whatever to like e again, I think is what it so comes back. So you can nicely with. control whether you can write or not to yeah. that particular queue. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing is like you still run in the situation where you're almost double buffering, right? Because yeah. if, if your process job is to write into the queue and then get something else, yeah. your loop now has become substantially it has well not substantially more, but it's just another edge yeah, of complexity. You have to keep it locally. It needs to keep loop with you there until it gets a successful message, mm-hmm. and then if you're not properly queuing up the data. Before before you dump it into the queue, you could have. When would you use lost. messages? Well, I'm sorry, message queues. Well, it, whenever you have a structured bit of information, you know, a known quantity of information to mm-hmm. send um, to another process. Okay, so if you want to exchange information that has certain structure, mm-hmm. as defined probably by both processes. Yeah, so everyone knows yeah. uh, the structure of the data that's being passed, and it's a it's something atomic. Right, so each message in and of itself is a is a f- complete chunk of information. So it's not a single flag that that you uh, flip. It's actually the information that can be used by another process to change the behavior of the application. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that's that's the right pattern. What you see a lot of people doing is they'll put some time into writing a little bit of code that serializes some structure. And serialize means just to turn into a big text string. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not XML because otherwise you'll need to definitely resize this, your message queue rate. But but they'll they'll take a data structure or something and they'll they'll turn it into um, you know turn it into text mm-hmm. that's acceptable to be placed on the queue that's fairly compact mm-hmm. and that'll get picked up on the other side of the queue and, and you, then put into the same data convert, structure and you can convert to whatever information you need. Yeah, um, I think that we are being flagged um, here that we are out of time. We have a couple of other synchronization objects that we haven't touched upon yet, so let's yeah, leave it for what? next time. Yeah, next time we'll, we'll put we'll put some time and we'll talk about signals and semaphores, which everyone loves signals and semaphores, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the first things you get into Linux or whatever kind of stuff, and you try signals out. So. Well, and this is, a, I guess, one of the basic topics when you when you learn about synchronization at the university or at school, regardless of what operating system imp- implements, you kind of get to know what semaphore and signals should be capable of. So next time when we talk about how they are implemented in Linux and what you can do with them, hopefully that's going to also help a bit in how you think about your application implementation yeah we should cover that oh i guess the thing to mention is is like so we're going to be an embedded world uh i think booth 11 113 yeah that's february pretty. 26th through 28th in nuremberg that's pretty easy to remember again booth number 11 11 3 yeah. and so mache is going to be there so you can hang out and uh, uh talk to mache i'm sure he'd be happy to throw the death to talk to you i know we have a lot of listeners uh yes. in in europe yes so, absolutely so please stop by uh, I, I've never been to that show, so I don't know what the traffic is going to be like. But if, if I'm there, stop by and, and, and that'd be very nice to talk to you. Yeah. And I know we're also at the RTECC. Someone put one. a big piece of paper in front of my <laughs> face saying, get it right this time. But so we're at the RTECC show and um, uh, in, in Silicon Valley. And I know there's another one in Dallas. So that's where you're going. Uh, oh yeah, so you get to go to Nuremberg. <laughs> I get to go to Solus Dallas for for God's sake. So so I'll be off in uh, in in Dallas for uh, I think for a couple of days. I think it's like a one day show there. And again, if you have any comments or uh, suggestions, uh, questions, please do contact us. Uh, send us emails. We we get quite a few of them uh, these days, and, and we do our best to respond back to them. But send them to a podcast at timesys dot com. Mm-hmm. Or visit us at timesys.com. Yeah. 
Uh, oh no, I, I see, you know, they, they finally got this linuxlinkradio.com. And there's another URL. Yeah, linuxlinkradio.com. Yeah, Linux, Linux, I can say it. I can say it. <laughs> linuxlinkradio.com. There you go. Well, so till next time, uh, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by TimeSys. Are you new to embedded Linux? Looking for a way to simplify your next project? The Linux Link service by TimeSys makes it easy to build your custom embedded Linux platform. Go to TimeSys.com today or call 866-392-4897 to learn more.